Welcome to the UNT Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, we are continuing through a new series of talks that focus on biblical stewardship. In these talks, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer will be leading us through the Bible, bringing practical application of giving, not just the tithe, but the giving of yourself, why we need to do it, and how this honors God and the church body and those around us. Today's talk is titled, The Covetousness Trap. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. And now, here's Heath. Chapter 6, we'll be there the majority of this morning. If you haven't figured it out, we're in the middle of a stewardship series. Again, a steward is a servant. It's a servant who recognizes that he is under a greater power, a master. Our first message this last week was hitting the number one reason that we do not give to God. And again, when we say stewardship, we're not just talking about how much money do you put in the offering envelope. We're talking about how much of you do you recognize belongs to God? Do you give God of your time? You know, do you come here on Sundays or is this what you do if you have nothing better to do? You know, do you give God of your energies? Do you serve one another? Do you share the gospel? Do you give God of your life? What we give in the offering box, that's that's just a thermometer of the Lordship of Jesus. You know, it shows in all areas of our life, how much does Jesus own me? Remember in 2 Corinthians 8, we talked last week, Paul referenced the Macedonians. Why did they give of themselves and resources to Paul's work? He says, they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. None of us will ever give of ourselves to God in stewardship, whether it's time, talent, or treasure. None of us will give of ourselves to the Lord until we first recognize that he is our Lord. We have confessed him as Lord, and then we begin to live like it. And then it's not going to be something we do out of a a slavish sense of have to. It's not going to be out of guilt. It's going to be something that we long to do. He is our Lord, and I want to see him smile. I want to please him. This morning, we're going to look at the other reason for people who want to give to God, but simply do not. And there's, there's, that fills many of us that we would love to be able to give more to the Lord's work. We want to live generously. That's in the heart of all believers. We want to live generously. God told Abraham, I'm gonna bless you so that you can be a blessing to the rest of the earth. Why is it then that sometimes God's children feel like I don't have enough, even for myself, much less to be a blessing to the rest of the earth and to invest into God? energies and in ministries. It may be because you're caught in a snare. You're caught in a trap. You see, Satan, we're going to look here in 1 Timothy 6, Satan lays snares and traps for us to entrap us into a certain lifestyle so that we have nothing left to give to God. It's the contentment or the, the covetousness trap. Jesus said uh, that we're either covetous or content. You can't be, you're not neither. This morning, everybody who walked in here, you are either covetous or you're content. You're never neither and you're never both. Jesus says we serve one or the other. We're either content in Christ or we're covetous and we desire more things. He said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. He will either hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And what's he talking about? 
you cannot serve God and money. Now, he's not vilifying money here. What's he recognizing? You can't serve God as Lord and still have yourself be Lord as well. You see, money is our our ability to act as our own Lord. Our money is our independence. Our money is our ability to act independently and to be self-sufficient. We can't be self-sufficient trusting in ourselves and what we can control and what we can purchase and still have Jesus be Lord. He says we're one or the other. We cannot be both content in letting God be Lord and covetousness, us trying to grasp at our own lordship at the same time. We're gonna be one or the other. Money is just a revelation of what we love. I mean, Jesus said that in Matthew 6, 21 as well. Where your treasure is, what's also there? It's where your heart is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. So if you wanna see what we love most in life, look what we devote our money to. He says it's going to be very revelatory as to what you love in life. And so in 1 Timothy 6, Paul is going to describe the covetousness trap and the contentment that can free us. But let's first look at contentment. We see, A, that contentment is the only true gain that we can have in life. That the wealthiest man in the world is the one who needs nothing more than he has right now to be happy. That's true gain. When you are godly and you're content with what God gave you, you are the wealthiest man here. He says, but godliness, in verse six, 1 Timothy 6, verse six, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, what is godliness? To do a study in this particular word, what it reveals is it's the things that we do externally to reveal the faith we have internally. It's the visible manifestation of our faith. It's the external things that we do to demonstrate that I truly believe in God. Because you see, James says, without faith without works is dead. Don't say you trust God. Don't say Jesus is Lord if your life doesn't reflect it. Don't say Jesus is Lord if your giving doesn't reflect it. Don't say Jesus is my Lord if you never, you never prioritize being a part of what God is doing on earth here at the church. Don't say Jesus is Lord if you can't change how you live, how you speak, how you treat one another, how you love. Faith without works is is dead faith. It's not real faith. And so here Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. So godliness is that external demonstration of our faith. It's what we see visibly. Coming to church is an example of piety or godliness. Being involved in community groups and D groups and uh, how we give and how we serve and sharing the gospel and holding doors for people. It's how we treat one another. This is all godliness. It's the word used to describe Cornelius and how he, he demonstrated godly piety. He was not just somebody who was a Christian in name only, he was someone who demonstrated his faith. Paul's saying here that godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment is a satisfaction that whatever God has given to me right now is enough. That my, my happiness equation is not Jesus plus something. It's Jesus. And then I can be happy. I can be content with quite little Jesus was saying the same thing, that we, godliness with contentment is gain. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and these things, these things that you're seeking after, you know, what will I wear and what will I eat? 
He says, seek first godliness and these other things. Trust that God will bring them unto you. That's the life of a wealthy man, a man who is in his heart free. He's not trapped. He's not snared. He's free to serve God. He's free to love others. He's not caught up in mountains of debt. He's free. The alternative to contentment, I mean, is greed, where you just never have enough. You know, John D. Rockefeller, America's first billionaire, uh, head of Standard Oil, when he hit that billion mark, the world was just in awe. They'd never heard of any one person having a billion dollars. And so a reporter once asked him, how much is enough? And he famously said, just a little bit more. It reveals to us the lie that somehow we can satisfy covetousness. That somehow by feeding covetousness, we can cause it to disappear from our life. That we can feed this to the point where it will disappear. When truly, a truly rich person is just someone who needs nothing more than what he has. It's what John Piper calls Christian hedonism. I always hesitate to use that term because hedonism is such a, a bad thing negatively. He calls it Christian hedonism. It's the idea that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And so one of the ways that we can glorify God and bring praise to his name is by being satisfied in him. Not satisfied with trying to make my life what it needs to be, but satisfied with God himself, that my happiness, my joy equation is God. It's not God plus a little bit more. That's true contentment. And Paul says, if you can get to that place where you are exercising your faith, you're seeking first the kingdom of God, and you find that yourself that you are joyful and you are content in God and what he's giving you, you're the wealthiest man on the planet Earth. B, contentment recognizes that everything that I have is temporary. Look what he continues on. He says, for or because, why should I live this way? We brought nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of this world. You ever watch a movie where a baby is born and they pull the child from the mother? You know, they're not wearing a tuxedo with a cigar in one hand, a glass of champagne in the other, living it up, are they? You don't see that. We don't come into this world with a bag of money. We come into this world naked, you know, and helpless and hairless. And Paul is saying that's exactly how we, end, we leave this world too, isn't it? You didn't bring anything into this world. You brought no value into your family, no established wealth. You came into this world moneyless and naked and dependent upon other people. And he says, and that's the way we're going to go. It's a reminder that nothing, everything that we have here on earth is temporary. It means everything that we acquire between the cradle and the grave is rented. We don't own anything. We rent it for a period of time. 2 Peter 3.10 tells us this about the earth's future. It says, but the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is just that period of time where God is going to wrap up human history. And he's going to establish a new heaven and a new earth. He says, the day of the Lord, he says, it's going to come like a thief. It's going to come when you don't expect it. Thieves, thieves sneak in at nighttime when you're sleeping. And so it's going to be like you're unaware of what's going on, then all of a sudden, it happens. He says, that's what the day of the Lord is going to be like for a lot of people. You're not looking for it. Spiritually speaking, you're asleep. You're not aware of God. You're not aware of his expectations of you. 
were sleeping. He says it's gonna come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavens is everything that we can see through a telescope. All these beautiful formations in space and black holes and uh, planets and solar systems. He says all of it someday is gonna disappear. It's gonna pass away with a roar. That word roar is the sound of a forest fire. It's the crackling and the rushing. You ever, heard, you ever been around a fire when that wind is just rushing through and it's this loud, crackling, intimidating noise and you know this mighty force of fire is about to consume everything, including you. He says that's gonna be the entire heavens someday. He says the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. In other words, exposed to the fires of the judgment of God, that God is gonna judge the earth, the people on it, and all that we have, and he's going to burn it away, and the things that were empty and, and pointless and just frivolous, he says, are gonna burn up. It's the wood, the hay, and the stubble. It, it lights up quickly, and there's nothing left. God says that we need to be living with an awareness that everything we have in earth is temporary. So don't, don't get too excited Knowing that it's temporary, why then would we live for temporary things? Don't get too excited about it. Now, it doesn't mean that man hasn't tried to take with him what he has earned into the future. All civilizations have tried because for the physical man who is not spiritual, spiritual futures and spiritual realities aren't what's most important to him. Physical realities, your 401k, your house, your car, your stuff, the clothes you wear. That's what's most important to the physical man. That's his security blanket. If you will, it's his God. When man does not worship the creator, what does he do? He worships the creation itself as God. Quite frankly, I think that's why we see a rising amount of environmentalism. The way that people fanatically try to protect Mother Earth. Friends, it, it smacks of a religion, not a political ideology because Mother Earth rather than Father God is what sustains us, and that becomes my security blanket. I've gotta invest everything I can into making her okay and to make her comfortable so that I'm safe and secure. And we just, we just get so involved with clinging to the physical universe because we can't imagine spiritually letting go and trusting God with our future. I mean, every civilization has done this. Think about the Egyptians and the pyramids. What's inside the pyramid? Oh, sure, there's a pharaoh, but he didn't need that whole pyramid just for himself. What's inside that pyramid with him? You know, it's, it's, it's a whole resort. It's, it's, it's gold and jewels and pottery, and I don't know, there's probably three or four wives thrown in there or something. I mean, there's everything he's gonna need for that future. It's inside that pyramid. He's trying to take it with him when he goes because his... He's, he's called Ra, the, the visible God on earth, but in his heart, he still knows he's just a man. And there needs to be that security moving into the future, that I am hanging on to the physical universe. The Norse mythology, what do they do when someone dies? You take these gold coins and what do you do? You, you put them over his eyes, why? So he can take those coins into the future and pay the ferryman to evidently go to some kind of heaven. We still, we have that in uh, Chinese culture. My wife and I, we visited Xi'an, 
We call it Zion, okay, X-I-A-N. You go to Xi'an and you go see the terracotta soldiers. You ever seen pictures of those? This massive army made out of just pottery. You know what that actually is? It's the Emperor Qin. When he died, they buried with him this massive pottery army so that in the afterlife, he can take that with him and command the forces of evidently that are out there in the afterlife. He's got this massive army. And you say, well, we don't do that today. In China, they did. Uh, in April, about the first part of April, there's something called Qingmingjie. It's a tomb sweeping festival. And what you do is you go and you, you clean off the, your ancestors' tombs and things. You light incense. But you do another practice there. It's still practiced today. It's going to happen in a few months. And what you do is you burn something we call hell money. And you take this paper money. It's fake. You can buy it at a store, whole stacks of it for little to nothing. And you burn it. And the idea is I'm sending money to my ancestors in the future so they can take this physical stuff with them when they go. And, you know, you can buy a car, a paper car, and you can burn this car. And all of a sudden, you know, dad's cruising through, you know, in a little Mazda Miata throughout eternity. You can burn a little paper TV so they can catch up on America's Got Talent in eternity. I mean, it, it, we laugh, but that's... There's a belief that somehow we can take this physical universe into the next life. You say, well, we're Americans. We don't, we don't do that kind of a thing, you know, do we? We get so caught up in trying to live for the future. We're trying to build ourselves a legacy that is going to somehow last and remain. Friends, none of this is going to last like I've said before, you can't name more than one Pharaoh who is revered as God on earth. Don't think that your time in the soup kitchen is gonna get your name remembered for eternity. And so don't invest on the things here on earth. Don't be rooted in the world. Romans 1.25 says they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's... That's when you're not content. You, you're just, you're clinging to earthly things for your security, and we become hoarders. You ever wonder what the heart of hoarding is? My grandpa was a hoarder. Um, hoarding is this desire that I can accumulate things for myself that will make me feel secure about my future. I can't give things up, and I can't give things away to people because that gives away some of my security. Where does our security lie? Is it in our ability to acquire things? Our security is in the Lord. Our future belongs to Him. And so we need to be able to release that and to be content in Him. We'll see how little can we have and still be content. He says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Anybody's Bible read very differently from that? I want to read a different Bible verse that says, with food, with clothing, with a Maserati, with a beachside condo, you know, with a full closet of clothes and with a fat 401k, with these, I shall be content. Anybody, anybody reading the Living Bible, you know, and read that, one of these new translations? That isn't how it reads, is it? What does he say? With what things do you need to be happy and content this morning, right now? Food? Clothing. Any of y'all lacking that? Vessie, did we let any naked people in this morning? I don't think we did, did we? We don't let naked people come to church. We're going to get you clothed, and then you come to church. There's, I would also wager there's probably not too many starving people here today, are there? I'm looking around. I mean, I'm not saying anything. I'm still working off seven pounds I put on during the Christmas holiday. Got to repent. 
no, we aren't struggling with food and clothing, but yet Paul says, if I have these two things, I can be a happy man. And you've got to understand the class system back then. As Americans, most of us, we don't understand many cultures outside of America. Most of us don't truly know what it's like to have staple foods. Every country has staple foods. You realize that when you study anthropology, they have staple foods, things that they eat every meal because it's what's cheap and easy that they can produce. America, we don't have staple foods, do we? You have whatever you want. You want Chinese one day, got it. You want Japanese the next, you want Italian the next, you want Mexican the next. Our concern is not how will we be fed, but can I be fed in a way that constantly keeps my senses excited? The class system structure in Paul's day was this. The rich were described this way. They had all the food and clothing that they needed and they had enough for their wants. They, had, they made their life about the pursuit of wants, hobbies and things and experiences. Your middle class were the people who were the working class. They had enough for food and clothing and they never worried where it was coming from because they had a stable job. They had the very most basics of society, food and clothing. Your poor were those who had neither. Perhaps they had no clothes. You say, how does a person get to life with no clothes? You get to a place where you're hungrier than you are proud. And you could sell your clothes to get some food. You're on, I mean, you're at the very bottom. And so that's the poor. You don't have even sufficient food and clothing. You don't know how you're going to get fed that day. Now, according to these standards, where do you live? Be honest. Are you poor? We don't have naked, hungry people here, most of you. Uh, are you middle class? I would say you're not even middle class, not biblically speaking. You've got your needs, and do you, are you able to even freely pursue many? Nobody gets to pursue all their wants. Even Solomon, who had all the riches of the world, what do he say? I didn't deny my eyes from everything, and at the end, it was still vanity. I couldn't ever get to the place where I could so titillate my flesh that I felt contented and satisfied. He says, in the end, I just found that it's even more empty. It's a black hole. No matter what you put into it, I'll never be content. And so, do you have all of your needs met and enough to pursue many of your wants? For most of us, that's our life. If you gave Christmas presents away this year, you're in the rich category. If you, have, if you have hobbies, you're in the rich category. If you have more clothes than what you need, you're not wearing the same clothes every day, you're in the rich category. You're able to, you have all of your needs. You're not concerned about where your meals are coming from. In fact, your only concern is, do I have enough to fulfill the wants that I want to achieve in life? That is rich in God's eyes. But can we ever find happiness in those riches? Solomon tried it. Read through Ecclesiastes. He says, I tried to satisfy my eyes with everything, manservants, female servants, and, and music, and wine, and mirth, and song, and none of, it, none of it brought me contentment. So it's not possible to be content by simply feeding our covetousness. It's never going to be enough. How do we become content? It means immediately right now recognizing that what God has given me today is enough for today. With food and with clothing, I can be content. All we really need to exist in life and be happy in Christ Jesus is to know that my body is warmed and that I have enough food to get by. With that, now I can invest myself in the things that are most important, relationships. 
Now, I want to read to you a verse that we've probably taken out of context before. Uh, how many of you guys, you love Philippians 4.13? I mean, you have it tattooed on your arm somewhere. You've got it posted on a wall. I mean, it, we love that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And when do you usually quote that verse? Right before a math test. Right before you get into a, a track competition, right before a wrestling match, right before something you're about to do and you just want to feel superhuman, I can do it because Christ strengthens me to be Michael Jordan and I'm, I'm there. Can I read to you the verses that come before what Paul actually meant by that? That's not what it means, by the way. The verses, remember, if you've taken any of our uh, discipleship series in Roots, we, tell, we taught you how to interpret the Bible well. And that means you look at the context. Now, prior to Philippians 4.13, what does Paul say? Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul's saying there's no situation that he was ever in where he didn't find contentment. Now, remember, that comes from a man who's been shipwrecked three times, beaten with rods countless times, and in multiple prisons. I mean, this guy is a frequent flyer when it comes to prisons. And he still, and this man still says, in whatever condition I'm in, to be content. Remember, too, where was Philippians written? From imprisonment. While Paul is in prison, he's saying, even there, I've found contentment. For I know how to be brought low. In other words, I accept when God brings me into situations of lack. He says, and I, he says, I know how to be brought low. And I know how to face, uh, I know how to abound. And in any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing both plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What is it that Christ strengthens you to do? To be content even in times where you're lacking. That's what that verse means. Now all of a sudden, you don't wanna, you wanna remove that tattoo from your arm. That is not what I thought at all. God, I don't know about that. I don't think I want to have to deal with a lack and still find contentment in that. I don't want to be happy with very little. But that's exactly what that verse is saying, that God can give us the strength in every circumstance that we're in, no matter how poor you are, no matter how much your body may be suffering today, no matter how many people you love who you've lost, that you can right now, today, in whatever situation you're in, choose to be content because God himself can strengthen you. has nothing to do with your bank account. You can be happy today. You can be content right now if you choose to be. Why? Because I know that God is, is God sovereign? Ah, oh, we like that word, don't we? Until we understand what it means. God is sovereign. He's in control of the entire universe. Is he in control of my life and circumstance and situation? Or is there anybody here that God looked down today and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I never intended that for Danny. What happened to Danny's life? I better get this fixed quick. No, if you're in a situation in life, it's because God wants you there because he may be teaching you something or he wants to show his strength through that situation. Your, your life is not surprising God. And so if God is sovereign and in control of your life, it means God has you where he wants you and he wants you in that situation through his strength, not your own, but his strength to find contentment in that. And so how little do we need to be content? It's whatever you have right now. If you have food, if you have clothes, friends, you can be content and happy in Christ today because God, my God, will strengthen you to do that. The alternative is just to continue living in the covetousness trap. Let's, let's define what covetousness is. A, 
Uh, the definition of covetousness, we're going to see this in verses 9 through 10. He says, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation. I want you to notice here, this sermon is not preaching against rich people. If you have a lot of stuff because God has given you the supernatural ability to make a lot of money, praise God, there's nothing wrong with that. This passage does not vilify the rich, unlike much of our culture, where they see, oh, if somebody has more than me, they're evil. Jesus saw that as part of life. The poor you shall have with you always. God wants some people poor because they're living sinfully, and he wants them to reap what they've sown. And he wants some people who have worked hard for where they're at to reap the benefits of what they've sown. Never have to apologize if God has blessed you financially. Nothing wrong with that. What does he vilify here instead? Those who desire to be rich. We often misquote a verse from this passage. We always like to say that money is the root of all evil. What does this passage actually say? The love of money. It's the love of money. And can you have a love of money whether you're poor or rich? You can. You can be a poor guy who's constantly longing for more than what he has right now, more than what God has provided you today. I want more. I have to have more to be happy and content. The Bible says that person is covetousness, the love of money, the desire to acquire a little bit more. Rockefeller syndrome, just the desire to acquire a little bit more. He says that is covetousness, and that's going to consume your life. This word desire, let's look at what it means to be covetous. We desire to be rich. We desire to have more than what we have. It's a middle voice reflective verse, uh, verb, and a middle voice just means that that desire comes from within us. From, James asked, from where do wars and come, fightings come from? Does it, does it not come from here, from the lust that war within your members, within your own body? And so from within our body, there arises this longing to have stuff. And, and honestly, like every other sin, it arises from the sin of pride. The more I study the Bible, I've, I've come to the conclusion that humility is the root of all virtue and pride is the root of all sin. I mean, it was the original sin, was it not? From Satan, I will be like the most high. And so even covetousness arises from pride. I'm too good of a person. I'm too important of a person to have this standard of living. I need to be up here. If somebody has this over here, then surely God expects me to be able to have that. I mean, why should Randy drive the car that he does and I'm driving the car that I do? Surely God expects me to drive, the, to drive what others drive. If somebody has something good, it should be me. And that's, that's simply pride that's driving this. We desire to be rich. It's because we're comparing ourselves to other people. You know, I, covetousness is hard because, or contentment is hard because it forces us to depend fully on God, to be content with what God has given us today. And that's a hard place to be. Most of us, our culture, we have accustomed ourselves to never having to trust God if we don't want to. Nothing wrong with insurance. Let me hear me say this, but we have insurance for everything. You have health insurance. So if you need to have surgery, you can have it and don't have to worry about where the money's coming from. I know I'm covered in the future. Uh, you have car insurance. So if I hit a patch of ice, and I skid and slide my car into Michael Lighty's pickup, I know I'm going to be okay. I can pay for it. This guy's going to cover it, this insurance. If I have, uh, I mean, if I die, I got life insurance. And I know that, you know, I'll have this grand sum of money going to my wife, and she's going to marry a younger man and retire in Tahiti, you know, and I know that she's covered. 
I mean, we can even hire the Aflac duck to help us not get our, you know, to recover lost wages. We, culturally, we love insurance. Why do we love insurance? Because it gives us a sense of security. I can trust in what I have earned to protect me if I'm wise with how I spend it. Again, have insurance, nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is that culturally, we don't like being forced into positions where we have to trust God with that future. It's not comfortable. It's not fun. I don't enjoy it. Our flesh longs to be self-sufficient. Well, those, when we desire to be rich, we become dependent upon ourselves. What, is that, what kind of situation does that put us in, according to verse 9? But those who desire to rich do what? Fall into temptation. It's not that maybe you will if you desire to be rich. If you're in a state right now where you are constantly longing to acquire a little bit more to be happy in life, he says you're already in temptation. You've already fallen. There's no, I long for more physical things, but I'm, I'm, I'm still, you know, walking great with God and contentment. If we are in a state where we're always longing for a little bit more to be happy and content with what God has given to us, we are in a state of temptation already. Jesus warned us against that in Luke 12, 15. Jesus, he's out there, he's preaching about the kingdom. He, he's telling about eternal life. He's saying, lift up your eyes from this world. Look under the harvest and look all these other things. And he's trying to lift up our eyes from this earthly world. We're like little hamsters. We're just running on the wheel every day. We have no concept of that there's life outside the cage. And Jesus, he's preaching all this. And all of a sudden, a couple guys come up and say, hey, 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 all this preaching about the kingdom, it's great and all. We love spiritual things. We grew up in a Christian home too. So yeah, we like that all. But we have something that's more important to us. And you see, my dad died and we have this inheritance and we need to divide it up amongst us. So Jesus, will you, be, will you kind of mediate here? And their heart was for physical things. Their love was for physical things, not for spiritual things. And so Jesus calls them out and he says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness because life, one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. He says, be on guard, be looking for you, be looking out for it, like, like it's something that's coming after you. Covetousness is around every corner. It's trying to ensnare us. You know, before, right before we came here to Unity, we were staying at a uh, mission house in Kansas City. And we're just going about our life, and I'm doing some admin work and things, and Amber, she's in the kitchen and working on some stuff, and all of a sudden, you know, we hear some screaming, which is a good indicator that she desires my presence. Uh, so I go to see what the screaming is about, and come to find out, there's a snake in the house. Now, don't get too worked up. This is Kansas City, okay? It's not like Dallas. It's not a rattler. I mean, he was probably that big. I mean, if I were to stretch the brother out, maybe, maybe, maybe that long. Itty-bitty little guy, non-venomous, and it's the middle of winter. So he's sprinting like an old guy after he left the Golden Corral, okay? <laughs> he was slow. And so <laughs> I look at this snake, and I'm, I kind of feel bad for him because he's cold. And I just kind of scoop him up, and I take him outside. I just, you know, chunk him out into the weeds. I didn't kill him. He's a good snake. eats mice. Well, she's like, why didn't you kill him? Well, he's a good snake. eats mice. And I tried, to, I tried to extol the virtues of snakes, of good snakes, and she didn't believe any of it. And what I discovered is I went back to my room. I started doing my email and stuff. I come back out in the, the kitchen a little bit later. <laughs> Don't make me laugh. Um, I come out a little bit later. My wife, that rest of that afternoon, for hours, she's carrying around this little step stool. And it's not because she was cleaning out the upper cupboards either. She was standing on a step stool as she's doing dishes. <laughs> she's standing on a step stool as she's making dinner. 
because she's so afraid that this snake is going to come back in the house somehow, this frozen snake, and he's going to come back in the house in the same hole, and this first thing on his agenda is get revenge on the wife. And so she is on the lookout. There is something that is prowling around that wants to bite my heel, and I've got to watch out for it and to insulate myself from it and isolate from this thing that may consume my life. Now you understand what Jesus is saying when he says, be, a, be on the lookout for covetousness because it is unlike that snake. It is that snake that is trying to come in and he's trying to wrap his coils around you, get that step stool, do whatever you gotta do, be on the lookout because covetousness would love nothing more than to entrap every single soul sitting here right now. Because if he can entrap you, you can't go and do anything for God. That's where covetousness wants to be. We're gonna see B here that covetousness cannot be satisfied. He said those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, and to many senseless, doesn't make sense, it's not logical, and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So giving in to covetousness is not gonna satisfy covetousness. Instead, it's gonna lead you to what place? It's going to ensnare you. It's this treadmill. You're never gonna make it happy by giving into it. A snare is, the particular word is referring to a rope with like a little noose at the end. You know, you go into the forest, you wanna catch yourself an animal, and you put this little rope and a noose there, and you hide it, you conceal it so the animal cannot see the rope. Cover it with some brush and things, and you put some kind of food in the middle of that, and then you hide behind a tree, you know? And you're gonna yank that rope when the animal comes to get the free, easy meal. The Bible says that covetousness is a snare. Now, when the hunter snares the animal, why does he snare him? It's to trap him, to keep him from going and doing the things that he wants to do. The Bible says covetousness is a snare that will keep a Christian from doing the things that their heart longs to do. I want to be free to serve God. I want to be free to do these other things, but I am caught in this lifestyle that I've created, and now I don't have the freedom to, to serve God freely any longer. I don't have the freedom to spend time with my wife. I don't have the freedom to spend time with my kids because I'm too busy running on this treadmill, this hamster wheel of life, just trying to keep my head above water to maintain this standard of living that perhaps God never intended. And all because I looked at my neighbors and thought, well, they seem to be having a good time with it. Maybe God intends that lifestyle for me. Satan, call, or God calls this a trap. It's a snare. God wants us to be free from snares. God doesn't want us entrapped. Bible keeps talking. I can give you a whole number of verses. We don't have time for them this morning, but there's a number of verses here that talk about us being free in Christ. When you're in Christ and you're walking holy according to God's word, the Bible describes you as free. You, you are unhindered in your movement to be a blessing to God and other people. But when we live according to covetousness, the Bible calls that a snare. You know, some of the best marriage advice I can give to people when they're first starting out is be happy with less live in a smaller house than you need, have fewer clothes than you, absolutely, you know, just than all your neighbors have, just have what you need. Don't go out and buy the, you know, the first, the biggest, you know, 175 inch TV that you can find. Don't go out and buy yourself a matching pair of, you know, Ford Expeditions. You know, don't go out and, and plan on having a Disney cruise every year when you just get married. Learn to live with less 
so that you have time to invest in the things that are truly what are gonna make you happy in life. That's your relationship with Jesus Christ and that's your relationship with, with other people. Let me give you a couple of verses. Proverbs 17.1, one of my favorite verses says, better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting and with strife. A morsel is a loaf of bread that you would bake early in the morning that would feed your family the rest of that day. Remember Jesus' prayer, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. So this is our daily bread, that's a morsel. Now, if you're eating a dry morsel, why is your morsel dry? Because my wife's a bad cook. You're eating a dry morsel because you can't afford to eat your fill, everything that you want that day. You've got to ration that morsel out over a period of days. And so by day two, by day three, you're getting enough to get by. But it's not tasty. It's dry. It's, it's bland. It, it's, it meets the needs. But Solomon says, better to have a lifestyle such that it just gets you by and meets your needs if there is quietness. Quietness in this context is referring to the fact that there's a lack of fighting. There's a lack of chaos. Your life isn't just this out of control, chaotic thing where I'm running here and I'm running there and we don't have time for each other. And so when we do come into each other, we're both running back and forth so hard, we hit each other all the time. You know, we bump into each other, we make each other mad and we frustrate each other. And so he says, better is a dry morsel, a lower standard of living, but there's quietness, there's love, you enjoy each other, than a house with great feasting with strife. Feasting means you don't simply have your daily bread, you've got your daily bread, you've got meat, you've got fruit. You don't just have what you need, you have an abundance of things. But to get that thing, what did you have to do? You had to sacrifice relationships often to get there, don't you? Dad has to get a second job. Mom's working full time. And you both are so leveraged out with debt. You come to a place where you're like, we have to keep working this way because our debt and our lifestyle demands it. Friends, that's when you know you're in the covetousness trap. You've been snared. You can't do what you want to do. You can't come to church. Why can't you come to church? Because of this job that I have. Because it, it demands that I work every Sunday and every Wednesday. It just happens to be every time something spiritual is going on, my job wants me to be there. Friends, do you think that's a, an accident? It's a snare and there's somebody on the other side of that rope and he has yanked you by the ankles and he has convinced you somehow that you have to stay in that snare. And I no longer have time for God. I, I can't give my money. I'm out of energy. If you are in that place where you have no energy, no time, you're in the snare. And I say this not as criticism, friend. I say this with all the love in the world that I care about you too much to just let you sit there and snare. I, I look at you and like coming across a, an, a dog with his foot stuck in a trap in the middle of the woods. I go, well, it's not my dog. And we walk away. You're like, no, I want to help that dog get free of that snare. He's going to die. That's how I feel about our people. I care about you too much to watch you just sit here and snared and held in this trap, living in misery and difficulty. A similar verse also found in Proverbs, says, Proverbs 15, 17, better is a dinner of herbs. Herbs, this is a bitter vegetable. It's the kind of stuff that you could collect freely from the highways and byways. You can't afford to buy much, but you, better is a dinner of just bitter vegetables. He says, rather than what? Than a house with a, than, than, or he says where love is, than a fattened ox and hatred with it. It's communicating the same thing. Better to be eating a lower of bitter herbs, a lower standard of living, but there's love there. 
You have time for God. You have time for one another. He says, better that than a fattened ox. But there's hatred. You don't even like the people that sit across the kitchen table from you. You know, I think some of the... Friends, by the way, if God has given you a job or a lifestyle where you can afford the fattened ox, blessings. Live generously. Enjoy what God gave you. If your career is such that God is allowing you to make a tremendous sum of money and you can have all these things, there's nothing wrong with having those things. Job was wealthy, and yet godliest man of his day. Abraham was wealthy. Noah could personally fund the ark. Okay, Lydia, seller of purple, wealthy. These are wealthy, godly people that are known by their faith. God doesn't rate you by what's in your bank account, whether high or low. It's what you do with it. Are you happy with what God gave you? So if you have a fattened ox lifestyle, God bless, be, live generously. But for many of us, God has given us a bitter herb standard of living, but we demand a fattened ox standard of living. What do we have to do now? We have to go into debt. We have to become a slave to our, our debtors, or those that we owe to. That's the snare. I'm not gonna be content with a lower standard of living when I could be up here. If I can leverage myself to the hilt, I'm gonna drive the nicer car, I'm gonna have the nicer house, I'm gonna have the nicer clothes, I'm gonna have all these nice things, I'm gonna take the great vacations because, let's be honest, I'm worth it. That's the snare of covetousness. Bible says twice here, better to have the lower standard of living but not have to live a crazy insane, chaotic life. You can't feed covetousness to satisfy it. I won't go through all of it right now, but Proverbs 30, verse 15 and 16 compares covetousness to a leech. That leech does not stop. It will keep sucking blood. The leech has two daughters, it says. Give, give. You can't feed your covetousness and hope it goes away. It will only grow bigger. See, we're going to see here finally that covetousness is a spiritual problem. It has nothing to do with our bank account or our career, our situation. He says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. We spoke about that. It is through this craving, a love of money. I just love things. I love what money can buy me. He says, it is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We don't use that word often. It's just talking about pains. We'll talk a little bit more about that piercing later. He says that people who hunger for just stuff, their eyes are on earthly things and acquiring and gaining and increasing my comfort level in life. He says those people have, are, find themselves, they will wander from the faith. This word wander here, it means to turn aside. You notice something. You were dead on and focused, but then something shiny caught your eye and you went and, huh, look at that. It's, the, it's a word that wander literally is a word that means to seduce. That you are going about your business and something caught your eye and it's seducing your attentions. Now, often my family, we'd have to go to Bangkok for good medical. And unfortunately, the best hospital in Bangkok is just down the street from the red light district in the Sukhumvit area. In my family, I'd be holding my wife's hand and my children will be with me. It's very clear we're a family, and yet the prostitutes would call out to you, and they're wearing all these flashy clothings and revealing clothing, and they're, they're trying to get your attention. If you're still just like, honey, I'm looking straight ahead, just stay close to me, you know? And if, you, if that isn't enough, they, I've literally been grabbed by the arm by these people. 
Their goal is to allure you, to be flashy, to get your attention, to turn you aside. I was going to go to the grocery store and buy eggs. Now I see this, and that has my interest, and I'm going to turn aside and follow that. If you've ever been fishing, you know exactly what that looks like. You have a fish, he's going about his business, he's doing what the Lord wants him to do. He's struggling to survive. He's eating junk off the lake floor, or he's looking for that insect, and he's sneaking up and he's eating it. But then all of a sudden, you know, along comes Kevin Riddle in his bass boat, you know, and he drops a lure in the water. Bloop! Hey, there's an easy meal. He was focused on what God wanted him to do, but all of a sudden he turns aside. Hey, and Kevin's like, I see you. He, he, he yanks on that lure a little bit more, reels it in a little bit more. See, doesn't this look lifelike? Doesn't it look real? Doesn't it promise you great happiness for your future, Kevin says? Kevin's a very deceitful man. He's a fisherman. <laughs> He's promising this fish, this fish something he'll never get. And eventually that fish, if he focuses on it long enough, he will wander turn aside, and he will latch on to that lure that he's dropping in the water there, and, he, and pretty soon he's going to realize he's got this pain in his jaw, and he's not quite sure why, uh, and all of a sudden he's got some fishermen taking a picture with him. This is what it looks like to wander from the faith, is what happens is we're going about our life, we're focusing on Jesus, we're, we're trying to honor him first and foremost in our life, and all of a sudden there's an opportunity that drops in our path. Bloop! Well, is that opportunity from God or is it from Satan? I don't know. Let's look at the, see if there's any strings attached. Let's see if there's a hook inside that worm. Sometimes an opportunity will come on our path and it's from the Lord. It's an opportunity for him to bless your family. Do you, is it possible that Satan sometimes will drop a lure into our path where it's an opportunity where I can increase my standard of living by a measure, but with that, what does it come with? Oh, by the way, I don't get to see my wife or kids anymore. Oh yeah, and it, I have to work every Sunday and Wednesday. Let me ask you, friends, who'd that opportunity come from? Is it God that wants you to walk away from being faithful to him so that you can have a little bit more comfortable lifestyle? Is that, do you honestly believe that God is the one saying, you know what, go ahead, take that promotion. I realize that you're gonna have to walk away from the faith, but doggone it, now you'll finally be able to afford that, uh, you know, that old old Jeep Wrangler you've been after in all these years. God isn't going to do that. In fact, that's Satan. He's dropping that line in the lure. He's got the hand on the rope. He's, got, he's the one on the other side of that fishing rod trying to lure us in so that we will wander from the faith. He says, and when we do so, it will pierce us through with many pains, that there's going to come a hook often with these opportunities that drop on our life. Not every good opportunity that shows up in life to advance our comfort is from God. You got to examine what, at what cost is there a hook? Is that truly worth it? Friends, this is what we're talking about. We talk about the covetousness snare. If you feel like in your life, the reason you can't be at church, you can't serve, you can't give, you can't, you can't focus on Jesus right now, it's because of the lifestyle that you've created. Well, I've got all these expenses. If I don't keep working up at this high level, high RPM redlining here, I'm, my life is gonna collapse and fold in on itself. And now I have no energy, time, or money. Friends, that is what it feels like to be on Satan's fishing line. You are hooked already. The question is, do you want to be free? The Bible says that many who have wandered from the faith, he says they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. That word pierce talks about an animal who has been skewered to the point where he can't get free on his own. 
you're on somebody's you know, trout line. You, know, you're, you're, you can't get free. And to get free at this point, you'd probably need outside help. Somebody to feel bad for that fish you know, and let them loose off the hook and throw them back in when dad's not looking. You, know, you need help from somebody else. Can I tell you, friends, that help is available to you today. If you find that you're miserable in your life because you feel like all you're doing is working to live, there's freedom from that life. And that freedom can be found right here. It's found in God's word and it's found by some really good counselors that we have here at this church who can help you figure out a way to have enough money to pay your bills, still fully go hard after God and to be able to give generously to the Lord's work and to other people. Does God command those things, by the way, to us? To be faithful to the Lord, to his church, faithful to walking with Jesus, faithful to give? Does God command these things? Will God command you to do something that he won't enable you to do? You don't sound very convinced. Will God command you to do something he will not enable you to do? He will not. He will give you the strength to do it. What it might mean is making some really tough choices to eat bitter herbs for a while and to wait and pray that God will provide you know, the fattened ox style of life that I long for. And then maybe we'll find that we have time to spend with my wife and we don't fight so much anymore. I have time to spend with my kids and now they're respectful and obedient. Or I have time to invest in the ministry here at church or I have time to, I have the, the money to, to give back and see the Lord's work move forward in powerful ways. I can be used for that. But you can't be if you find yourself still entrapped by the covetousness trap trying to acquire and attain everything that your friends and neighbors have, thinking that if I have what my neighbors have, I'll finally be happy and I'll finally be peaceful. Friends, that's the lie of the trap. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just pray today, just confessing, Lord, that we are weak and frail people. We are people whose senses are easily titillated by little exciting things. We like shiny things. We like things that smell good. We like things that make us feel good. We long for comfort and we clamor for security. We just want to know that my life is going to be okay, that I'm going to be comfortable, I'm going to be happy. And Lord, many of us have bought the lie that things are going to be the vehicle to get there. Father, I pray if there's anybody here who's caught up in the trap of covetousness and they find themselves working at a high level in their activity in their life, it is at such a high level that they're having to sacrifice their relationship with you, the relationship with their mate, relationship with their kids to attain these things. Lord, will you show them that in Christ there is a freedom that when we're yoked together with you, that your burden is actually light. Father, free those who are struggling with that today. And for those who are living in contentment, Father, I pray that they would disciple others to show them how they too can enjoy the freedom of just being content with what we have right now. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. 
Let me not wander from your commandments.